You're listening to Education Experts with EDX Education. Education is evolving. Join Heather Welch from EDX Education chatting with teachers, psychologists, parents, authors, creatives and other talented experts to keep up with the trends and what's happening from around the globe. This podcast series from EDX Education discusses home learning, school readiness, being creatives, changing in education, discussing what's next, hands-on learning, or as we like to say, learning through play. Welcome everyone, I'm Heather Welch from EDX Education and today I'll be in conversation with Brantley Turner, education management expert and currently principal at the American International School in Shanghai. I'm going to say this, it might not be correct, but Chi Bao Dwight High School. Brantley's recognised for her pioneering work with East to West School Leadership and Impeccable Chinese Communication Skills, a pending Doctor of Philosophy, a PhD, focused in international business with a specialisation in higher education from International School of Management. Today we're chatting with Brantley about her adventures working in Asia, global citizens and trauma-informed teaching in the international context, which I think we can all relate to. Welcome, Brantley. Thank you for joining us today. Wonderful. Thank you, Heather. I'm so pleased to be here. It's wonderful to join from Shanghai. Uh, it's so nice to have you. But can I ask you to talk about your passion for education and the adventure you've had with, you know, overseas, particularly in Asia? How did you get there? Absolutely. I think, you know, I, I have come at education from the standpoint of cooperation. And I feel like this, this path, this journey of being engaged in China, being engaged in Asia, has always been trying to figure out how to get things right. You know, getting it right as opposed to being right. And the aspect of education that allows for that journey, right, that exploration, that not everything is about outcomes and the end game. I've just found it has kept me engaged and, and excited. And also just thinking a little bit about the podcast and a connection to play. You know, there's so many different interpretations of play. And really, in my case, play has always represented what sparks joy and sparks connection. And so my passion for education was consolidated as I realized I could use it as a tool to cooperate and collaborate. And it's playful and, and fun. And I have a lot of funny stories about being a bad English teacher and all sorts of things. But, <laughs> but really it's about that, that connectivity and that, that moment when you're in the classroom or you're working with teachers and, and how... Just for me, it just sparks joy and connection. So when, when did you first go over to Asia? What, was, what did actually take you over to Shanghai particularly? Sure, absolutely. So I, I first took a trip to Beijing in 1994. And I had an opportunity. My mother was on a business trip and I had an opportunity to go with her. And I just was blown away. I mean, honestly, I had a great education, but I'm not sure that I knew Beijing was the capital of China. If we think about 94, we were starting to get connected with the internet and email and there's so true. much going on. <laughs> and and I, I landed in this place and it, it, it was so new and different and exciting. And so I wound up doing various stints in Beijing as a student, you know, just typical language learning. And then as I was graduating from undergraduate in 1998 in the US, I thought, you know what, I just want to move to China and try it out. So I joined a graduate school program uh, at the Hopkins Nanjing Center, which is a joint venture program between Hopkins, uh, Johns Hopkins University and Nanjing University. And it was a cooperatively run graduate school. And I think that's really what 
transmitted to me, how little understanding there was, how, how little connection, how much misinformation. And it, and it really just put me on this path of discovery. I absolutely know how much I don't know about China, right? And I would not even profess to be able to interpret on a daily basis, even the simplest things, but I, it's the pace and the speed of development and the changing. And you know, I feel like I became an adult as I, as I went on this China journey and have been lucky to get to step out and spend time in the West and, you know, I haven't only been here, but, but really it's, it was an, you know, I was an avid explorer and China just ticked the boxes in so many different ways for me. Asia is an amazing place to be. I know that, you know, there is a lot of misconceptions at times from East to West and West to East is a nice way to put it. I mean, we've, EDX Education is actually based in Taiwan and my stepmother's Chinese Taiwanese and over the years I have learned many different you know just different cultural changes and differences that we have but some really beautiful ones too and the ways that you know from all the different festivals the cultural festivals that come and even living in Singapore there were some amazing I mean I always loved anything from uh, was it tomb sweeping to the the moon um oh what's the one where you do the, the lanterns the moon mid-autumn festival mid-autumn festival they're all beautiful and there's so much behind it as well so you know I mean even oh dragon boat dragon boating everything like everything was just there's always there's so much culture behind all them when you're from Australia you know our country's not even that old (laughs) so for me it was always amazing to see all of this but listen let's have a chat about global education in the 21st century I understand that's something that you're interested in that you've been looking at especially where you are now Well, for sure. And I think that really when we start to think about global citizens, which essentially the mission of my school is to give Chinese students access to international education. They do leave China to go to university. So it's this great gift with these 15 to 18 year olds, right? You get them at this crucial stage where they're becoming an adult. When they leave us, they go on to university, they leave their home country, they go on this grand exploration. And you really want to feel that you're equipping these young people with the tools and the awareness to to flourish in those challenges. And and you've obviously spent so much time around the world and and I've had that privilege. And, and, you know, you think about young folks, my students' parents, for the most part, don't speak English. And they've made this amazing decision to put their child in our school, which is an international baccalaureate curriculum, which is a very Western, right? It's a very Anglo-Franco anchored curriculum. And I think that as global citizens, we have to start saying, okay, we have this responsibility to these young people. And how do we treat that responsibility? And so I've always working on these kind of key questions right around, is this internationalization of education in whatever country that sits, right? Is it, it it isn't the Westernization of education and and what are the, the, the lessons and the values and the understanding and even the content that we can pull from different cultures, you know, we spend time in the, in the West talking about decolonizing the curriculum. Okay, what's our starting point? If we need yeah. to think about how to bring responsibility into the curriculum and honor the home, the home culture. And so to me, global citizen, global citizen starts with the idea of, of honoring and respecting. And we live in a world with a lot of young people and frankly, a lot of adults that don't come from that starting point. No, that's very right? true. It's the evolution of education, really. We're at a tipping point now where it does need to it, we do need to change it. it does need to change mm-hmm. not just internationally it needs to change in home countries as well <laughs> that's, 
so just a few kind of easy ways to think about it, right? And I think that educators and, and parents would agree with, we must help these young people to understand conjecture from opinion, right? Who, what, are, what are people's opinions? What are facts? What is the meaning behind what, think of how much digital consumption our young, our young people are, are experiencing, right? So one is how do you make it, how do you know what you're being told? How do you distinguish that information? Also, how do, you, how do you deal as a digital citizen? How do you deal as a person in interactions, face-to-face -face interactions? We've been given so many amazing benefits by the connectivity, right, of digital citizenship. But at the same time, how do you really treat others and how do you learn in those spaces? I think in my case, right, I'm a very, we, we've talked a lot about in the world in the last two years, this kind of VUCA idea, right? Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And I think in my, in my situation, I've been in a VUCA state in China for multiple decades. And so I've sort of, with my global, you know, trying to help, help raise global citizens as students, really force that gray, force that discomfort and sort of relish it, right? Find the beauty in the complexity and the uncertainty. So these are just all different pieces that I think we, we have to transmit and, and transfer to, to young people to serve their futures i suppose it's just to you know the globe it's a global evolution of they do say i think it was was it lego or someone did a big study with mckinsey one of the big groups and they were saying that by 2030 our education systems are not built for the jobs that are actually coming about because of this this fast tracking of all our, the digital world so they do talk about this a lot, that are we developing? So this is something that, Brantley, you may be developing faster than, say, our stagnant systems over here that, you know, do take a long time. And you'd know that with the American systems as well, that the, the curriculums don't change overnight. They do take a long time. And I know in America you've got the districts, you've got the, and it comes down to each state and everything. It is quite complex. So we, we might find that what you're doing with Global Citizens has more of the skills that we need for this change, this digital, this you know, evolution of digital citizenship, really, that we've got, which has been fast tracked to younger years. I know with my own children, Brantley, that you know, during COVID, when the schools were locked down, they didn't have that, they weren't interested in talking to their friends on social media, not social media, but more like you know, on these different systems. But that's how they were forced to have their friendship groups. Mm, so it's been really interesting how the trends have changed. And I I suppose that's something to ask you, you know, have you seen a massive change in education in the last two years, especially in international schools, with all of what everything that's happened? I think that in a lot of ways, you know, what you're getting at with this sort of idea are, are schools keeping up? It's this balance between, is it about content or is it about skills? Yeah. Right. And the reality is that we can't we can no longer learn for a world that believes we need to know content. We have content at our fingertips, right? Yeah, so true. But what we must do is adapt the education for the skills. And how do you teach young people to learn? The only way to keep up is to learn how to learn. And that sounds simple, but that is what is so challenging because you're dealing with each unique individual, right? It's like each child's an artist and how do you create how do you, we say at the Dwight schools globally, their spark of genius. How do you find that and uncover that when situations are so difficult, when so many people are suffering or do not live in ideal circumstances or do not have 
you know, tech, the technology access that, that some do, right? And I think that one of, the, one of the sort of pieces, you know, I would almost say that certainly I wouldn't speak for China to say China as a whole is getting it right on how to educate young people for the future. And, and we could have a whole other podcast to try to, to, try to hash that one. <laughs> but, but the point is though, that when you're given these, these beautiful opportunities of two cultures or two ways of thinking, meeting each other, you learn this sort of ability to, to sit with paradox, right? You learn, and I think if we can help young people hold two conflicting ideas in their minds and tether it out, get out of their echo chambers, work to think about what is a global ethics? I mean, it's all fine and well if we in the West or, or separately in the East come up with an ethics that work for us, some sort of expedient morality, right? Yeah. But the problem is that isn't the world that, that our young people are facing and they can't expect to, to, to live without engaging with diversity, a diversity of thought, diversity of culture, of ethnicity, of race. And so I think that what I've been given a gift is to have a very small laboratory of a school to, to, to try to discover these, these things. But I do feel that the world of tests and assessment and grade and comparison and rank, it never leaves these young people behind, right? The way in which young people are validated. And, and that's something that I'm really interested in exploring and seeing how that's changed in the last two years. How has this disrupted learning, online learning, how has that changed the way in which young people feel that they can be validated and successful? And, and for me, the jury is out. The jury is out. You find, I mean, I know that still there was a whole lot of talk about scrapping all the assessments here. I don't know what you'd call them in America, but we had like common assessments and common, because the children just didn't have the same opportunities especially in the first, our first lockdown, particularly in the UK. And they asked for the assessments not to be, to be more of a competency-based and not so much as this national-based, you know, if you get A, B, C right, you're then in the top this, you're this, this. And they, it was really sort of, and it was, it's just been a really interesting time, but they still, we, it's still, we're still doing it over here. Like whether it's going to be changed in the next few years, I think it'll be quite late. I think it's going to be quite late for any change like that, especially the early years system has changed. So that's good for the early years, but it's for the older years. It hasn't for the high school. It has not at all. It's still that very much assessment by the algorithms are saying, this is what you'll get at university. This is what you're going to do. So it's been really interesting. But I do believe that the jury is out. It needs to, they need to think about how the systems work. Absolutely. I mean, I think you've addressed in a lot of your other podcasts time, right? At the end of the day, if you, if you give an assessment, you, you know, you're, you're meeting a, a, an end result and that there's not time to, to explore all things with all people and all students, right? So, but I do think you've seen tiny little interesting pockets. I'll just give two examples that maybe are relevant to, to listeners that are teachers. If you get a bunch of us in a room, we could argue forever about how it's all <laughs> But you know, if you look at what Cambridge and the International Baccalaureate did respectively, Cambridge went with this alternative to exams called portfolio of evidence, and the International Baccalaureate went with non-exam route for countries unable to sit the external assessments. And while that took some time, and it was very complex in 2020 without those systems in place, those movements give me hope that there may be some way 
to provide alternatives. And I think that I wouldn't say scrap it all right now. I'm, I'm a pragmatist, right? There's 220 million students in China. They're, they're literate. And I consider that an incredibly extraordinary achievement, right? So yeah. I think we have to, 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 to temper our, our sort of disdain for the, the lack of the, the evolution at the top end and make sure that we're not leaving kids who have no access behind. And so I do think that there needs to be a lot of thinking around that, but, but certainly being forced to innovate is a huge part of what you're probably trying to do in helping young people play more, right? <laughs> I mean, it is that, that we must innovate. And if we are forced by extremely challenging circumstances to innovate, it is my hope that at the very least we do it because otherwise we're completely squandering. We're, 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 we're wasting young people's time and not bringing the value that we could to be to, the, to their lives. So I think again, you know, I'm passionate about this topic because I, I don't think answers are easy, right? Solutions are not easy and there isn't a one size fits all. That's education. Must, is it the way that you're talking yeah. The way that you're talking about what what was it that you say, uh, Dwight? The genius is you find the inner genius. Spark of genius, the spark of genius, the igniting spark of genius. the spark. Well, I think that's such yeah. a lovely way to put it because not everyone's an artist, not everyone's a mathematician, but they've all got their own way about them. They've got something amazing about them. We just have to find it. Might be dance, might be music, might be something that traditionally is not seen as a you know we want you to be a lawyer or a you know a doctor or anything like that. So, and parents might have to get around to, oh, actually, they're going to be a dancer, they're going to be a choreographer, they're going to be, there's so many other things in life that they could have their genius for. So, mm -hmm. oh, I'm sorry, I've, 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 I've blocked your chain of thought. <laughs> oh, but so, do, should we, I mean, just continuing on with this kind of, with this, with this sense of where we're going, and I think just picking up on the, the last statement that you were making about, you know, some students are artists, some students are, are, are you know, great at math. The, the interesting thing about that is how do we connect our learning with a sense of standing in someone else's shoes, right? If we want to talk about a global citizen and we want to talk about how do you do that? Because not everybody's going to get on a plane and fly around the world. I mean, that's an extremely privileged position. So the point is, how do you create that ability to empathize, to care, to, to recognize that if you lose cooperation, right? The world is in a situation right now where decoupling seems to be the direction. And I mean, you know, ma massive decoupling across many nations and many ideologies. But if we move into that, that is, I would argue, bad for world peace. So how do we help each young person have the tools to recognize that? And I think a lot of it comes from those educational opportunities that they're given. I'm a huge advocate for arts education. I believe in the empathy. I mean, if I wanna understand my students who don't wanna to talk to me because they're teenagers who are uninterested in a conversation with me, you know, I just look at their artwork. I just look at what they're creating and, and try to understand and care about what's going on with them. And it, and it can engender huge empathy for others. And so I'm, I really, you know, reading programs, at the fundamental level, because you step into literature, you step into stories, you start to be able to look at things from someone else's point of view. And so, and so to me, these are all these micro needs that help us grow global citizens, as opposed to saying the program itself must be all about, you know, global mindedness. It's there's, there's little nuggets that you can pull from each discipline that help 
help students have more access to that learning and understanding. Really, I just want one thing. I just can you, for our listeners, can you let them know what your definition of a global citizen is? Just for the everyday teacher that's maybe only ever teaching right. in one country, or the teacher that's maybe teach overseas and come, they, then you know, is it the same as third culture kids? Is it global citizen? What are you classifying as third global citizens when we're talking about today? What I would so sure just to clarify, I think the global citizen is understanding diverse perspectives. Yeah period, right? And it's whether it's in your home country and you're working to understand different cultures within your home country with different backgrounds and different perspectives, because how are we going to drive towards a real understanding and embracing of diversity, real inclusion, be that cognitive diversity, ethnic diversity, gender diversity? How are we going to get there if we don't have the ability to understand things from different perspectives. So I almost would use perspective synonymously with global. Yeah. Because to me, even if you're doing it in your hometown, you can apply that more broadly to the world. It gets it, it helps work on bias and discrimination. And and so that's what I would offer. For you, what's the what's the secret ingredients for students to be global thinkers? We've sort of touched on it. What do you think the secret ingredients is? So again. It's, I've been you know, kind of reiterating this idea of the echo chamber, right? Let, let's talk about learning world languages, okay? Mm-hmm. Do, you, do, you, do you learn a world language just to learn the language or what do you learn the world language for? Immersion. Don't you learn, <laughs> right? you learn, don't you learn the world language to engage with the culture? And so AI is gonna replace the need for, la- for language learning, right? We can translate online anything a text of verbal document, subtitles for a movie. I mean, there's, there's apps to do all of that now and they do it extremely well. But do you understand the, the feeling behind the language? Can you, can you, so I'm, again, I think language learning as a part of global, globalized curriculum is also extremely important. Um, it helps students start to, to, to take on understanding a culture from, a, from, from the inside out. And, and not to say that you can then become a, a, you know, a native member of that other culture, but you at, least, you at least start to change your viewpoint. You, know, you learn words that you don't know as well in your own language, fun ways of saying things. I, mean, there's so many, I think there's so many advantages to young people who still have access. And I, and I guess maybe in some ways I'm, I'm bringing up three areas that I feel get under, our students are often underserved. And as I said before, arts and reading, and by reading, I would say library programs library programs that introduce students to different perspectives, even if they can't leave their, their hometown or their school. And then also that language learning, you know, why push second languages when a computer can ultimately do it for you? Because you're trying to instill a different value. It's funny, when we first met, when we were just leaving Dubai a few years ago, libraries now being cut, they're not calling them libraries, they're in the international schools, they're calling them sort of like your STEM or your make and do, and they're having library, but they're also having STEM activities and things like that to try and engage more students to come into the area and then get brought back into the books. So it wasn't just, it was sort of more of like an area they could hang out and do lots of things rather than just a library. It's a really interesting change that they're trying to do when our probably about two or three years ago and we we're leaving Dubai and some of the international schools just they're putting it more of a STEM or STEAM probably a better way to put it an activity so it brings in the arts as well so that they could do within the library that's one of those you know it's just another way to address the area 
Um, just something I, I know that you're quite passionate about this and I just I know I'm conscious of time so I want to have a quick chat with you it's probably not a quick chat but you know let's have a chat about trauma-informed teaching in the international context and your ideas around this. Sure I, yeah obviously a huge topic but the reality is that what we've experienced right or all organizations globally in the last two years in particular have faced trauma so that looks different in different countries, but it is a global reality. And I like to think a lot about the way schools or organizations support people during periods of trauma because you have opportunities to be uniquely powerful, right? And the ramifications are long lasting because we have become captains, whether we're teachers in the classroom with young people or we're administrators in schools, we've become captains of psychological safety and avoidance yeah. of institutions betrayal and and this to me is i mean and just just to sort of talk about it from the personal level i really i'm very comfortable with messy and gray as i said before right and complicated and i think type thinking about vulnerability thinking about how vulnerable students and teachers have become globally and trying to work to step in to that vulnerability is something that doesn't sit comfortably with everyone right it it, it not all teachers want to be vulnerable with students, and I'm certainly not suggesting that they become inappropriately vulnerable, right? But at the same time, you've got to recognize vulnerability and you've got to learn to address it. And I think for teachers, that starts with their administrations. You've got to lead that way. You've got to accept the messy, ugly, raw sides of life because that frees people to be messy, right? And I think that that freeing, and we see it with, with our young people who are having social emotional challenges, you know, they did not come into the world of the last two years as an adult with a broad range of experiences. Many of them came into it as very young people. I mean, students who've been denied socialization at the kindergarten level for three years. I have friends in Shanghai who were in other parts of the world first go round, and now they're here in online learning and they've barely been in school. And so again, when I, when I think about trauma-informed teaching, I think first, can we agree that vulnerability is good in leadership? Like, can we come to that agreement? Because traditional construct of leading is doesn't make space for vulnerability. And I don't think that works. And so I think, again, it starts at the top and then you've got to work down to your teachers. You've got to make it safe. You've got to make their, them space so that you can hope those teachers have the courage to walk into the classroom and face all of those vulnerable challenges that their kids are facing in the, in the classroom. That's support and education. Is that support and educationing them, giving them education to the teacher? Absolutely. So there's so many. I mean, we as our school designed a lot of different tools. I mean, quick lit laundry list. You know, I started to realize in 2020 when Wuhan locked down that a lot of my, my faculty were in dire financial straits because they were sending a lot of money home. They were sending money from China to the Philippines to India. And all of a sudden they needed access to money to, to deal with, you know, changing circumstances here. And they didn't necessarily have. So we hired a financial planner to work with teachers about how to do a savings plan, right? How to, how to learn, how to prepare for, for your retirement. And these are young people, right? They're like, I'm 30. Why do I need to think about this? And I say, because <laughs> now you understand what happens when you're facing crisis. Mental health counseling. I mean, I was terrified. I woke up on, on January 24th when Wuhan was closed. And I thought, oh my goodness, teachers are going to be trapped with their spouses and they're going to fight. And relationship problems are just going to boil over. So we reached out to a relationship counselor to be kind of on call for teachers. And we wound up investing. I, I gained a ton of weight in 2020 in the first lockdown. I was just eating my way through it. And fine, it is what it is, right? But I was used to exercising. It was gone. 
and all of these things. And then I, I sort of rectified a bit and, and lost some weight. And all my teachers started saying, my goodness, how did you do it? And I thought, look, I shouldn't give diet advice. I mean, not everybody's a different body. Everybody has different goals. So we hired a nutritionist to give some sessions with teachers who were really worried about the way in which being sedentary had impacted their health. And I think with the one other thing that we found, and I think this, this holds true for everyone, is we realized, you know, teachers have all this amazing opportunity to work on their pedagogy, right? Mm -hmm. They can work on ed tech. They can learn to use all these tools. I mean, goodness gracious, how many, how many seminars have been launched in the past two years to help us be better at what we do? <laughs> But leadership was something that was meeting. We had so much, we had so many leaders in school who were afraid to lead, right? And we needed, so we did a leadership sprint with an intercultural trainer. Because in my context, we've got a lot of people from different countries leading diverse teams. So, so there's a lot of, it's not just about speaking English, right? There's a lot of cultural connecting that needs to happen to make leadership successful. So we, we did that. Now, none of these initiatives were particularly expensive because the reality is, only, you know, 14 people chatted with the nutritionist and maybe a couple called the mental health counselor and 18 came to the meeting with the, with the financial planner. And then, you know, and these were all programs that we negotiated with people that we trusted who felt like their repayment to society during the pandemic and during a very rough period was to provide support for teachers at a reasonable amount, right? We were not kind of going for the high end high end we were going for people who were willing to sit with our teachers and help them and so there's a bit of that social networking thing again another bit of a kind of complicated topic in schools sometimes teachers are you know because teachers are trained and they have all their own expertise and then you get someone like me who's worked in business and is not the same level teacher that many other people are that work for me and, and i'm not the smartest person in, in the room and i don't always understand what my curriculum director understands about data but i think that I sort of position myself as somebody who wants to take care of people. And it's like a parent, being a parent, right? Yeah, <laughs> you're, parenting this, you're parenting this group that you don't get to tell them how they feel when they wake up in the morning. You got to learn to sit with it and, and sort of work with it. And look, we've made a lot of mistakes along the way and, and we're in a really hard lockdown right now in Shanghai. And I'm sure we're making many, many mistakes as well. But, but just as a, as a sort of a last piece on that, that trauma piece is... How available are you for people? How much do you deeply care about whether their fundamental needs are being met? And you can't meet them all. So, you know, you can't please everybody, but at least you can try to care deeply about what you're doing. And, you know, the reality is for the great resignation of teachers, if, if you can't do it and if it's too hard and you need a break, you got to take a break. No, it's, it's, you know, and it can be hard financially, but you can't force this. It is a incredibly challenging job that requires huge courage. And, and the only final statement I would make on that is I would love, I know that so many parents globally have really walked into the shoes of what it feels like to have a child trying to learn in the home. And that's created huge frustration. Many, many moms in particular have had to leave their jobs and that's been painful or or they felt that they're failing at being a parent all the time, right? I mean, because you want to be a good parent, but when you're completely fried yourself, it's very, very hard to be a good parent. And so I think that I'm hoping that there's a further and deeper understanding by the rest of society for the vulnerability and challenge of teaching. And, and I'm not sure we're there yet. I, I'm worried about teachers being misunderstood. And, you know, maybe we can grow some respect for the craft through this pandemic, that would be a great outcome.
Absolutely. I mean, it's the one role that it teaches it. I mean, it teaches this, it builds every single profession <laughs> realistically. Every profession has come from a teacher, someone they've learned from. I mean, it's amazing as a parent and, you know, I'm a trained teacher, but as a parent, I had my children at home and actually I've got a deep respect for teachers now having my own children at home. I think it's much easier to teach other children than your own at times because <laughs> the emotions, there's really deep emotions there. But also I think as parents, we realise, you know, the areas that our children probably weren't, we sort of had a blind eye with. We didn't really, we weren't that involved with. So sometimes it's we're involved in a different level, but kind of a, a good level, I suppose. Now there's been a happy medium for us. It's not everything is done at school. It's, you know, there's a there's experiences that we give our children and the way that we talk to them about it when it comes to having just general experiences, you know, there's sort of more of an education element, which I think sometimes we lose as parents and we just get so involved in how can I put it like a, a busy life having so many things on and making ourselves busy instead of taking the time in the moment but listen I know that we're we're getting out of time here and what I want to know is I think Bradley I'd love to hear that you're writing a book about all this however what is your next adventure so for now my adventure is to get through this term and, and, and try to be <laughs> as possible we'll be out on uh, July 1 but you know, look, I, I have this degree that I've been working on for a long time. I enjoy writing um, and I've written a lot about China and education in China and, and what I've learned from it through this, this doctorate. And I'm hoping I can finish it. I think I've still got a ways to go, but that would be an accomplishment. And, and a lot of people say, you know, what can you, you know, can you write about China and, you know, what can we learn? And I think for me right now, it's a pause on processing, right? I think I need some distance and I need some new experiences that then will help me process all of this, this, this time that I've spent here. And so I'm always looking to just get better at what I do and learn from others and stay open and write when I can grab a few minutes and try to be a good mom to my eight-year-old, 10-year-old and 13-year-old. I'm already feeling like, oh goodness, my 13-year-old's going to be leaving home. She's going into high school. You know, and so <laughs> family time and, and having joy together and celebrating and being happy when the sun is out. I'm very, I'm very content to, to just be and worry about checking a lot of the tick boxes that I feel like are out there at somewhere down the, down the track. Anytime I can, I can grab for myself. I do. That's good. That's very important too. If your batteries are empty, then you can't serve anyone else. Can you, we can't do anything for anyone else. But listen, how can people get in touch with you, Brantley, if they're interested in your, what you're doing for your PhD, trauma-informed teaching, international context, or if they're interested in the system that you've got in place with Chibo, Chibao, <laughs> Dwight um, High School? So look, I think LinkedIn is probably the easiest just because the social media that we have access to here in China is behind mm. the firewall. So it can be hard on Instagram and and stuff, but LinkedIn, Brantley Turner, definitely here in Shanghai, that I do check that when I jump the firewall and I'm, I'm happy to connect with anyone. It would be wonderful. Brantley, thank you so much for chatting with us today. We really appreciate it and good luck for your PhD. It sounds like you've got some time and also for all the work that you're doing getting through this term and maybe having a break over the summer <laughs> and having a little bit of travel when it's all back. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Heather. It was really a pleasure. There are so many exciting developments happening right now in education. 
EDX Education would love to hear from you, so do get in touch or subscribe to our podcast, which is available on Apple, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn, and so many more. This podcast series is brought to you by Heather Welch from EDX Education, as she'd like to say, let's create lifelong learners.